ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there and welcome to the program. Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks a lot for your company today. Well, the federal government has launched a review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. Everyone can see it just doesn't pass the pub test uh, for farmers to be paying, being paid so little for their produce and consumers to be being charged so much. Just what will this review achieve for farmers and for consumers? You're going to hear from the Ag Minister Murray Watt very soon. The Bureau of Meteorology says it will review its messaging of long-term weather forecasts following a wet summer in eastern Australia after it declared an El Nino. And have you heard of a food stylist? Anything from cookbooks to um, TV ads to shorts for um, like online media stuff to print ads. So anything that you visually see um, food-wise without actually eating it has been most likely, you know, done by a food stylist. Yeah, one of the bigger mango producers in the Northern Territory and around Australia indeed employs a food stylist. You're going to hear from her on the program very soon. First up today, for the wet season it is slowly starting to deliver across parts of the top end. Darwin copped some heavy rain this morning as well as the sort of Berry Springs and Dundee area. There's still storms that are moving southeast from the top end uh, through Lake Bennett and Old Marakai as we go to air at the moment. Looks like Adelaide River just got some rain. If it is raining at your place this afternoon, we'd love to hear your rain report. Please do send them through via the text line on 0487 1057. Is it raining at your place and did you get some last night? Let us know. Uh, There has been some decent rain over some of the cattle country. There's been a few storms around the Victoria River District. Uh, Camfield Station had 78 mils. There was another 75 at the nearby Townsend Creek. Um, Further north, places like Beeboom Crossing had 33 mil and 26 millimetre at Fish River. Plenty of reports of rain around the Catherine region too. Uh, just a bit south of Catherine on the Sturt Plateau, a storm rolled in over Dry River Station yesterday afternoon, as the property's Trish Parker told me earlier. Yes, the afternoon was pretty cool, actually. There were storms rolling all around us, and um, we actually stopped coming back from the, um, from the dump to take pictures of it over the, the pivot. Um, yeah, so it looked pretty cool. Um, yeah, it rumbled all around us pretty much all afternoon and hit, I don't know, about 2.30, I think it was. And yeah, down she came. It was really good. So, um, no, it was awesome. And how much rain did you get out of it? Uh, the the measuring gauge this morning said uh, 73. So Nice one. And wh- what has the wet season been like so far at, at Dry River? 
Uh, we actually got missed just before Christmas and New Year. We were waiting for it to hit. A lot of the other places around us were getting it. Um, we actually had a few little spot fires and that um, and were hoping for a bit of rain to put them out on the boundaries and that. But, um, yeah, and then in this, it's actually just started in this last week. So, But I think somebody said there was a few lows of uh, Darwin. So whether we're getting, yeah, getting some of that coming down from that, it's been really good. So, yeah, big fat rain. It's been nice. Sit on the veranda and watch it with a beer. Oh, lovely. And what does it mean for the station and especially uh, some of the cropping you've got there on the property? Uh, for a start there, I think our manager really wanted to get the planting done before it did. Um, yeah, before it did start. But um, now that it's all done, yeah, now it's good. Uh, we definitely, yeah, definitely a positive. Yeah, it certainly is raining in Darwin today. There's a uh, uh, quite a lot of wet weather around. But um, yeah, expecting more later in the week. You'd be hanging out for that, are you? After a, a bit of a slow start. Actually, we were told, yeah, we were told that this next week, um, yeah, there was it was going to come into big rain again. So we're trying to get as much done as we can. Uh, the first big storm we had, which was January one, uh, we actually had trees uprooted and around the house and took out my clothesline. <laughs> was oh, no. was my fatality. Um, yeah, so lucky we've got dryers over in the quarters and that. But um, yeah, we're we're actually still cleaning up from the New Year's Day or New Year's afternoon. Um, uh, yeah, carnage, we called it. So, um, yeah. Wow. And that dry river that the station's named after, how is it looking? Um, it's beautiful now. It's nice and green. And, um, yeah, we've um, we've got all um, pop-up uh, sprinklers and all that sort of stuff anyway at the homestead and that. But, no, even, even just around the homestead is looking nice. We've got a nice big billabong out the back that's starting to, to fill up and that. So... Yeah, no big fat cows, and it's lovely. Well, fingers crossed for more. Thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. That's all right. Thanks, buddy. It was nice to talk to you. Trish Parker, she's from Dry River Station. It's uh, pretty much directly south of Catherine by about 100 k's or so. Speaking there about the rain that has fallen over that property in the last day. Uh, still plenty of rain around this afternoon. Looks like Jabiru is copping a fair bit of rain and just a fair bit's gone through Adelaide River. Please do send through your rain reports on 0487 991057. More rain is expected this week. The Weather Bureau says a tropical low is likely to develop near the western top end or in the Timor Sea before the weekend, which is expected to bring some widespread rain. We will get some more details on that from the duty forecaster at five past one, so stay tuned for that cross to the Weather Bureau. But it's been a very dry start to the wet season over in the Kimberley, with one property south of Broome actually tracking cattle to the Territory to lighten the load off on the station. Uh, David Stoke from Anna Plains says he hasn't seen so little rain so far in a wet season for about 10 years, and he's watching this development of that tropical low out in the Timor Sea very closely. So normally, you know, a low in the Joseph Barnapite Gulf would come this way and, you know, go across the top and maybe form into a cyclone and, you know, go across over the Pilbara coast or or north of the Pilbara where we are. So, yeah, unfortunately, this one doesn't look like it's going to follow the rules and it and just sort of track south so it won't come here and, and that could make it worse because I assume it'll suck the moisture away from 
other areas. So, yeah, hopefully it changes the mind and, and comes this way, but we'll just wait and see. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for that. But, David, with these dry conditions, how do you deal with it? on the station? I mean, have you got cattle on the property? Are you getting rid of more than you would normally at this time of year? What are you doing? Yeah, so it's just employing a whole range of um, strategies, whatever you can, really. So we, we did truck um, 12 decks out uh, last week, which is pretty unusual to be selling cattle in, in January, but, we, you know, that did lighten the load slightly. Um, How many so, head of cattle is that, David? Like twelve decks? What is yeah, that? that was that was about four hundred sort of light cattle. So yeah, we we got rid of them. Um, so there'll just be more of that going on. Um, we can install a few new water points to spread the grazing pressure around. So there'll be that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's just whatever you can can do to to lighten the load. And the four hundred head of cattle, where do they? end up? Uh, they, they were sold to the Northern Territory, so... Um, oh, whereabouts? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. It was, it was around Catherine, so... To another station, so, though? Yeah, to another station, so they would get backgrounded there for a boat, I would think. Um, so, yeah, it's. I mean, they've had rain up there, so that's that does help us in giving us another marketing option. And also helping you in that situation is the fact that the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge is open sooner than normal, well expected. Yes, so that that did help us uh, in a big way. Yeah, so that that was a great result for for the industry up here and everyone that lives up here. So that that certainly makes marketing cattle to to the territory a lot a lot easier. And are you going to continue to do that? Is there other opportunities to send some more cattle over the border to the NT? Yeah, certainly if the opportunity is there, we'll do that and, you know, just try and get whatever we can on boats out of the room, of course, and uh, hopefully also that local meatworks will be wanting cattle. So, you know, so there's a few different marketing options for us. All right, so all those things are on the agenda. Is there another ship uh, scheduled for Broome? Uh, not as far as I know. I mean, they normally don't start till sort of late March, April. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just not enough cattle around. So, uh, I mean, boats keep going out of Darwin for the 12 months. But, um, yeah, they, they, they stop in over Broome during the wet season. And as you mentioned, the, the Kimberley Meatworks is also there for processing of cattle. Is that an option? You haven't taken that option up yet? No, not yet, but it'll certainly be an option uh, in in the coming months, that's for sure. And what about sending, and I know it's a long way, but sending cattle south to, well, the sale yards or, you know, other opportunities down south, is that that an option? Uh, It definitely is an option there. Uh, I mean, I guess the the producers in the Pilbara might beat us to that one. So there's, there's probably a limited amount of cattle that, markets in the south can cope with so yeah but it's just keeping an eye on, on what's available mm. and the prices how are things looking for this year well the prices i know they've improved in the eastern states so we expect that to flow on to here so um i mean that reflects that you know rain they've had in much of queensland and new south wales so yeah so i mean that 
Hopefully that'll uh, flow on to, to markets over here. And where is it sitting at the moment? Uh, not really sure. I know it's it, it sort of early sales, which there have been many in, in this year, has certainly improved on, you know, late last year. So hopefully that uh, the markets are on an upward trajectory. David Stoke, he's from Anaplane Station, which is the south of Broome. He was speaking there to Belinda Varischetti. He is certainly hoping for some more rain out of this developing monsoon, expected to intensify in the next few days. As I said, we'll check in with the Weather Bureau at five past one. If you have any questions for the bomb, text them through on 0487 991057. It's cyclone season. Now is the time to make sure you're prepared. Sit down with your family and work out an emergency plan for when a cyclone hits. Decide in advance where you'll take shelter. Prepare a cyclone kit with a radio, torch, essential first aid and toiletries and enough food and bottled water to keep your family self-sufficient for at least three days. For more information, visit abc.net.au slash emergency and listen to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. 13 to 1 here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Thanks a lot for joining me for the program, whether or not you're listening live on ABC Radio Darwin or via the podcast. Well, the federal government is conducting a review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. It will be headed by former Labor Minister Craig Emerson, and it hopes the review will help to bring down grocery prices and lead to some better margins for farmers. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, he says supermarkets are currently underpaying farmers and overcharging consumers. Yeah, well, I've been calling for several months now for supermarkets to do the right thing, both by farmers and consumers, uh, because I think everyone can see it just doesn't pass the pub test uh, for farmers to be paying, being paid so little for their produce and consumers to be being charged so much. Uh, We have seen, in response to those calls, some action from supermarkets to drop some of their prices, particularly for things like sheep meat, Uh, but there's a long way to go. Uh, And what we hope to achieve through this review of the Code of Conduct for food and grocery industry uh, is a lot more transparency from the supermarket chains and big retailers about what sort of prices they are paying producers, uh, and that allows farmers uh, to have a more level playing field when they're negotiating with wholesalers and retailers but it also gives consumers a much bigger picture about what the sort of price differential is between what farmers are are receiving and what consumers are paying. How can you achieve both things though? How can prices be brought down on supermarket shelves for consumers and at the same time how can farmers be paid more for what they produce? Yeah, the primary focus of this review will be looking at, as I say, the level of transparency between retailers and their suppliers and wholesalers. Uh, And I think it will achieve a lot to really overcome that situation where farmers um, just don't really know what prices the farmer up the road is getting when they're selling their produce to one of the retailers. And therefore, they don't really know what price to be charging the retailers and the wholesalers themselves. But I think that improving that transparency uh, and making sure that all of us know what the what the supermarkets and retailers are paying and how they're conducting their business more generally, that will really provide everyone with a much clearer picture and I think put at, at the very minimum put moral pressure on the retailers to do the right thing when they're setting their prices in supermarkets. If everyone has a better idea 
that a farmer is getting a very low price for their produce, it's pretty hard for the retailers to be able to justify charging a lot more at the supermarket shelves. Are the supermarkets essentially ripping off farmers and profiting uh, at their expense? I think that there are definitely cases where that's happening. Um, uh, And as I say, I just don't, no one can really explain the prices that consumers are paying when farmers are getting so little. And I do think there are cases where farmers are being ripped off by the market power that the supermarket chains have uh, and wholesalers along the way as well. Uh, We've seen so many examples now where farmers are really getting below the price of production uh, for all of their hard work uh, and someone is making a lot of money and it's people further up the chain. Just taking a step back, what actually is the Food and Grocery Code and what, what function does it perform? Yeah, so the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct has been around for a few years now and it's a voluntary code, which is one of the issues in itself. And we'll be having a look at whether we should make some of the obligations mandatory on the retailers and wholesalers. But what it's really designed to do is to regulate the behaviour of people in the food and grocery chain uh, supply chain uh, and, and provide some level of transparency. But clearly, it's not working the way it's going at the moment because we don't have the level of transparency and farmers don't have that sort of information flowing through to them from retailers and wholesalers, and that's why we think it needs to be reviewed. So, as I say, the way it's structured at the moment uh, is it's a voluntary code, um, but it's quite possible that as a result of this review, we may see that some of the obligations on retailers to be to make more information public may become mandatory rather than voluntary. It may be that we see much uh, more effective complaints mechanisms for farmers to be able to use if they feel they're being ripped off. And it may result in much stronger penalties against retailers and wholesalers who do the wrong thing. So they're the kind of things that we're having a look at through this review. There's also a Senate inquiry into the supermarkets and as well that the federal nationals have been calling for an ACCC inquiry. That's not something that you've supported to this point. But at the same time, I understand that the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is meeting with the, the head of the ACCC this week. So does that indicate you are looking at asking the ACCC to do its own inquiry? Yeah, look, we want to use every available lever to ensure that supermarkets and big businesses generally are passing on lower costs to consumers and uh, and are ensuring that farmers and other producers are receiving fair prices uh, for their hard work. Um, I've been actually in discussion with Jim about this for some time, uh, raising the issues that farmers are experiencing and consumers as well. And I know that he's been raising this with the ACCC for some time. And as you say, he's got another meeting with them this week. So if there are options that we can take through the ACCC, then we will absolutely take them. You know, I think you've already seen from our government that cost of living is our biggest priority this year. That's a really big issue for consumers, whether they're regional consumers or big cities. But I want to make sure that through this process, we see farmers get a better deal as well. Do you actually foresee tangible benefits for both consumers and farmers out of this review in that will consumers see lower prices? Will farmers see better prices? I certainly would hope so. I mean, that's the point of doing this review. Um, As I said, uh, I've met many farmers around the country who raise with me the fact that when they go into negotiation with the retailers and wholesalers, they don't know uh, what price really to be charging because they don't know what the farmer up up the road is getting. Uh, That leaves them in a very weak bargaining power. Uh, And so I think that if we can make sure that the retailers and wholesalers are being a lot more open about what they're paying, Uh, what sort of uh, supply mechanisms they're putting in place. 
I think that will level the playing field and hopefully will return better uh, returns to farmers. And equally, as I say, I think there's nothing better than a bit of sunlight to expose what large companies are doing and that should benefit supermarket, uh, supermarket customers when they go and buy their weekly groceries. Federal Ag Minister Murray Watts speaking there with Angus Verley, talking about this review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. It's being headed up by former Labor Minister Craig Emerson. But as we heard there, the Nationals are calling for the government to go even further. Leader David Littleproud wants to see the ACCC do an inquiry into supermarket prices, and he said that should have started months ago. We could see that, particularly with beef and lamb prices, that dropped about 60 to 70% in June, yet the price of the checkout only dropped at around 8%. And then when you see what they're doing to the horticulture industry, uh, where we're seeing them paying about $1.50 for melons, but charging $5.30 at the checkout, or even zucchinis, they're giving $2.20, Uh, to the farmer, but charging $6.50 at the checkout, there's a big disparity where we believe that the supermarkets are gouging, and they're gouging because between the two big Australian and the big German supermarket, they have 74% of the market. So they control it, but then they're they're playing with the prices at the checkout. We're all paying more. So we've said the government, unfortunately, missed an opportunity back in October because if they hadn't got that going, in fact, the ACCC would have been able to give... Uh, a report and and given direction even before Christmas. We could have seen some pressure taken off families for Christmas. The government said, no, we're going to do a grocery code review, which is not going to look at meat prices or fruit and veggie. It's more about the architecture. And then when they realised it was getting serious, they announced this Senate inquiry. That won't start till February. The cost of Well, uh, just on that, David Littlepad, I don't want to quibble over the wording too much, but it is accepting submissions already. They close on the 2nd of February. So you could argue it is indeed underway already. But the problem is, is that it's it actually. Firstly, you've missed the the window before Christmas. That the ACCC would have had the power to compel and actually have people in front of them well before Christmas. And secondly, they now have to wait for the Senate to come back for that committee to to recommit. And we don't go back to Canberra until February, so no action will be taken. So the cost of living crisis is in a couple of months' time. It actually it's been going on for the last nineteen months. Uh, and when you see that there are supermarkets taking advantage of that, then and there was evidence of that, you would have got the professionals to do it. That's the other point that we want to make about this. I'm not against the Senate inquiry, but why wouldn't you have got the professionals who have the tools, who have the expertise, to actually be able forensically look at the market conduct of the supermarkets rather than a bunch of politicians asking questions? Uh, David Littleproud, uh, just on, on that point, um, in terms of how much profit the major supermarkets are making. I just wanted to play devil's advocate for a moment. Coles, for example, made a billion dollars in profit last financial year. That was off revenues of $41 billion. So they would argue that for every $100 we spend, they're only making $2.50 in profit. And I presume no one wants the supermarkets to go bust, do they? They do have to make a profit. No, exactly. I'm not, as I said, I'm not against them making a profit. It's just how they conduct themselves in making that profit. And, and what they've done, particularly with the horticulture industry, is they've actually get producers because they are the market. This isn't a bigger market. This They own 74% of the market, so they control it. And what they've done, and we've seen this even in my electorate, where they've got horticultural producers to buy more land, give them a contract, but then walk away from the pricing within that contract, leaving farmers to, only, uh, to, to actually lose money and have to sell up and move out. So their conduct has been unconscionable because they control the market. Their response to all this is, we're just paying the market value. 
The market value is what they determine, not what the pure market decides. And that's what we're saying. I want them to make money, but it has to be reasonable. And what we're saying is there should be transparency in that pricing around cost of production and around what that translates of their markup. David Littleproud, he's the Nationals leader, speaking there to Damien Smith about supermarket prices and some of the power that the big duopoly wield. Um, he's calling there for an ACCC inquiry into those prices. Uh, but one fresh food analyst, he says that supermarkets actually have less pricing power than most people think. Managing Director of Fresh Logic, Martin Nebone, he says it's actually quite a competitive market. I think at times uh, the competitive environment the supermarkets work in is not well understood, particularly with fresh food, because they are they're dealing with um, a substantial specialist retailer sector, butchers, bakers, fishmongers and fruiterers, and they are competent. Uh, in this marketplace in Australia, and they give the supermarkets definitely a run for their money. So to think that in fresh food the supermarkets can just set their prices and disregard each other or those independent uh, specialist operators uh, I I think is not right. I think that uh, the the price setting is very much some of those competitive dynamics. So if the competitive bar was down, it's certainly a lot higher than what it was 20 years ago. Martin Nebone, he's a managing director of Fresh Logic, a food analyst speaking there. And plenty to go in this review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. We'll keep you abreast of any more developments. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to The Country Hour. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald with you for this edition of the Country Hour. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Still to come on the program today, Australia has sent just over 200,000 rabies vaccines to our near neighbour, Timor-Leste. Both Australia and Timor-Leste are free from dog-mediated rabies. Uh, It's present in parts of Indonesia, Bali and Earlier in 2023, uh, we detected West Timor for the first time. So that is the other half of the Timor Island. So that significantly increased the risk to Timor left. Yeah, we'll hear more about that soon. And we'll also catch up with a professional food stylist who actually works for a large mango grower. That'll be on the Country Hour soon. Right now, it's time to check in with the Weather Bureau, where we've got Sally Cutter on deck today. Sally, a bit of action about this afternoon, but first, um, some overnight rainfall figures. Uh, What were some of the best falls? Yeah, there's some pretty good falls. We've had a couple up in the sort of 70 millimetre mark. So, Charles Point was the second highest. They had the, let me get the right one. They've had 75 millimetres, but Canfield River got 78 millimetres. Townsend Creek, 75 as well. Dry River didn't live up to its name and got 73 and a half. 
the Upper Townsend Creek 63 and Catherine Bray Road got 52.4. So they were the, the, the oh, Point Forest got 52 and yeah, that was all that was over 50 millimetres. So that's quite a number over that 50 millimetre mark. So we are starting to see some good rainfall. If you're looking at since 9am today, Tipperary Haywood Creeks had 38 millimetres, Charles Points had another 34, Groot Islands picked up 29 millimetres, Nookers got 23.6, so there's been some good falls around the place. The it, it does peter off and they are still sort of showery in nature, but we are seeing the, the, the rainfalls pick up. Yeah, and we've uh, had a few more rainfall reports from uh, some of the cattle country around the Sturt Plateau. Uh, Avago Station had 31 mils. Uh, Western Creek Station is reporting 26 and Hidden Valley 51. So they're all pretty good reports. And um, yeah, there's still quite a big bit of action happening right now. Sally? Yes, certainly. So we've got a line that sort of all basically goes from Nullumboy through... To northern parts of Kakadu and then to he- heading off down towards Wadair and also in the eastern parts of the Carpentaria and northern northeastern Barclay there's a few sh- storms already firing and it looks like the Gregory and the Barclay are going to kick off as we go through the course of the afternoon. Probably one thing to remember is because we're now getting this rain the ground is starting to get a bit more saturated and particularly around Catherine we so- did see the Catherine River rise a bit from the rainfall they had overnight. So we're just getting to the stage where to any significant rainfall is starting to be seen in the, in the rivers. And how much more rain can we expect in the next few days with this development of the monsoon trough? What's happening there? Well, we're starting to just see the monsoonal squalls coming in. The, that, because they're moving reasonably fast, they're, going to be, they're not going to dump a lot of rain, but there's going, they could be a little bit gusty. And because... We've had this preceding rain. The, we could see the, the any any tree that's a little bit top heavy could go over. So just just be mindful that with the gust, we could see some trees being brought down because we could have those damaging wind gusts. The the trough and we should see the rain increase, particularly if the low over the in the Timor Sea develops, or even if it doesn't actually develop too far, but it then moves on shore and brings in a lot of moisture. Where that we could see some considerable rainfall through the southern parts of the top end. And is there there's another potential uh, tropical low developing in the Gulf of Carpentaria? Yep. The what. How that goes will partly depend on what happens with the one in the Timor Sea. The, they're fairly close together, so they, if, if they get too close together, they don't do well. So they, they need to have a, be a bit further apart than they are. So it, it just depend on exactly what the the one in the west does. But the one in the east, is, there's a lot of showers and storms around the Gulf Carpentaria at the moment. And one thing also, if you are in those coastal areas around the Gulf of Carpentaria and on the north coast, west coast as well, with these westerly winds, we tend to get the water piling up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So we could see some tides just above what you'd ex- or tides above what you expect. Yeah. And on the highest tide, might exceed the that highest astronomical tide. But we we will see the could see a little bit along the north and west coasts as well once the winds get going. Okay, and what's the likelihood of a tropical cyclone developing in these lows? Uh, it's sort of a moderate chance the, for the one in the Timor Sea, but it, it's, got a, it's only got a little window in which to do it. 
So we're looking at lows through to Saturdays and then Saturday evening through to Monday morning we've got a moderate chance and then it drops back to low. It's probably going to be too close to coast or over land. And the one in the Gulf of Carpentaria has got a low chance from Sunday morning. Okay, so uh, I guess this low will have to sort of stay over the waters for it to, to develop, will it? Yeah, to, to develop into a cyclone, it may just end up being a big monsoonal low with the monsoon flow up to the north of it. Yep. So even if it doesn't develop into a cyclone, it still could produce wind and, and rain. So it's really a case of making sure you keep an ear out for any of the warnings that may go out in the next few days. And having said that, we also do have a heatwave warning for the southwest Leicester district at the moment. So it's just it's, it focuses in the north for wind, rain and that sort of thing, but down south it is still very hot. Uh, yes, let's quickly touch on Alice Springs and <laughs> Central Australia. Um, looks like it's still pretty warm there for the next few days. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to see much change until well, early next week or late in the weekend when we or when we start getting those showers and storms returning. So we might get a little bit down into the to the northern Simpson on Friday, but it's generally going to be the southeast or the easterlies coming in. So Yulari looking at 41 today to 25 tonight. Alice Springs is pretty warm as well, top of 39 today, 23 tonight, but 40 tomorrow. And we could see, exactly from Friday, we could see the chance of a shower down through there. Okay, planning to keep a, an eye on there, Sally. Thanks for the update. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau? It is 12 minutes past one. Storms can be damaging and unpredictable. Being prepared will help reduce the impact on you. Put together an emergency kit. Include first aid supplies, a torch, battery-powered radio, extra drinking water and long-life food in case the power's cut. Write an emergency plan, including contact numbers for family and neighbours and have copies of important documents in waterproof bags. For storm updates, visit the ABC Emergency website. This is the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, an ABC radio right along, right around the Territory. Thanks a lot for your company. The Bureau of Meteorology says it will review its messaging to the public about long-range forecasts. The Bureau, it copped a lot of flack from farmers after declaring an El Nino back in September last year, which was then followed by quite a bit of wet weather across many locations in eastern Australia this summer. And while the Bureau says its models late last year were showing increasing rainfall for December and January, that message largely didn't get through to the public. Dr Carl Brazenga, National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau, he says the organisation will learn from this El Nino forecast. Oh, totally. Look, and, you know, we would like our forecasts to work out every time, um, you know, and certainly um, professionally for us it's been not only interesting but also um, looking back. Um, so one, one of the things I think if we were learning from this event, um, a lot of our messaging through spring was really geared towards the emergency services. We, you know, have had quite a number of years where we've had significant national natural disasters. So um, when we were looking at our risk setting for summer, certainly I don't think we would change much in terms of um, preparations for fire weather. And I think probably given that the models were bringing some moisture in for summer, we were noting that soil moisture was reasonably okay and that the water storages were really good. So from an agricultural perspective, um, it wasn't looking like we were heading into severe drought. 
um, but certainly probably elevated fire danger. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, we can only call it as we see it at the Bureau. So, you know, as we were developing that El Nino, um, given that really dry and hot um, August, September, October that we had in many parts of the country, um, you know, the, the, the risk setting seemed appropriate at the time. Is there a bit of a conflict there then if you're trying to do long-range forecasting, one, to uh, inform individuals, including farmers, but then more generally to to inform fire risk? If, if you can err on the side of caution with fire risk, but then when it comes to agriculture, you have farmers trying to make big business decisions based perhaps on, on those forecasts? I don't think it's a conflict of interest. It's really a case of every sector probably has a different way to look at a long-range forecast. So a long-range forecast is probabilistic. Um, and so depending on what you're doing and what your risk setting is, um, you would interpret the seasonal forecast a little bit differently. And the Bureau, of course, doesn't control how others, whether it be uh, uh, lobby groups or politicians or whoever it may be, how they represent your forecast and your El Nino declaration. So is there a problem there that the Bureau's putting out information, it's being conveyed by others, and then the, the, the reality of it is being lost? Look, that's certainly not something that we can control is how other people talk about it. With this event, um, we had heard talk of a super El Nino and um, you know, some of those sort of words were used around, not just here, but, but globally in the media. Um, we were quite, we never liked that. Um, it sort of starts to, you know, once someone calls something um, a super El Nino, that tends to stick in the media and in people's minds. Um, but, you know, yeah, obviously we don't control all of that messaging. But, but what we can do is be really clear in our own messaging that we put out as I said, look, we'll review this year, but um, looking back at what we did, I think I think we called it as we as we saw it. Um, talking to the emergency service managers, even some of those agencies weren't really adjusting some of their summer um, outlooks when we started getting indications of rain, and and that was fair enough. We really did get fires, particularly through um, inland New South Wales. Um, so it's just one of those years that's been very very difficult to forecast, and there's been a number of surprising factors to the climate system, particularly over the last three months. Dr Carl Brazanga speaking there to Angus Verley. Dr Carl is from the National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau of Meteorology. It is 17 past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. The Australian Government has sent 200,000 canine rabies vaccines over to Timor-Leste to help combat the fatal viral disease that's found in dogs. Australia and Timor-Leste are both currently free of rabies. However, it is present in Indonesia, in places like Bali, for quite some time. But it's more recently popped up in West Timor. A Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer from the Department of Ag, Dr Jennifer Davis, explains Australia's involvement. So we have a a long-standing program supporting Timor-Leste with uh, animal health and biosecurity. I guess recently... Preventing the spread of rabies to Timor has become a priority. I guess first off, I should highlight that both Australia and Timor are free from dog-mediated rabies. We're some of the few countries in the world that do remain free of rabies. Uh, it's present in parts of Indonesia, um, including Bali, and earlier in 2023, uh, it was detected in West Timor for the first time. Um, so that is the other half of the Timor Island. Um, so that's significantly increased the risk to Timor-Leste. So it's become a real priority to help prevent the spread of rabies to Timor-Leste. And the most 
effective way of preventing rabies in humans is vaccination of dogs. DAS, in partnership with other Australian government agencies, including the DFAT Centre of Health Security, um, has provided up to 200,000 dog rabies vaccines. Um, and we also have technical staff in country supporting the rollout of a canine rabies vaccination campaign. I guess to go back a few steps um, and remind us all of rabies and, and what it is, because I think a lot of people hear that and they think of a dog with a frothing, foaming at the mouth. Um, but, yeah, how would you describe what is rabies and, and the risk that it is? Yeah, so, um, you yeah, know, that image of a dog with a frothing mouth is certainly one of the um, classic, classic pictures of rabies. It's a, it's a virus. It occurs um, in more than 150 countries around the world. Um, as I said, Australia and, and Timor are in very much minority in being free. Um, it's quite a devastating disease. Um, it's, um, it's transmitted to, to people um, and to other animals through saliva, and that's usually through bites or scratches from dogs. It affects the nervous system of, of mammals, so that's humans and, and dogs, and it causes um, pretty severe disease in the neurological system and the brain, um, which I guess is that kind of image of that rabid dog that's you know, frothing at the mouth and, and mad. Um, and unfortunately, it is ultimately fatal without um, immediate treatment. But the good news is it is a vaccine-preventable disease. So... Um, that, that's why there's such an emphasis on this vaccination campaign um, and making sure that there is appropriate vaccination for people and for dogs. Uh, there's also, there is a, a global um, strategy, Zero by 30, which is a collective goal, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the United Nations, um, and the World Organization for Animal Health. I know that's a lot of organizations, um, but they have this collective goal to end human deaths from dog-mediated rabies by 2030. Right, so in the next six years, and will that come by vaccination rates going up? Is that the, the strategy? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's sort of well, well studied that if you can reach a certain uh, level of vaccination in the dog populations, um, it's enough to stop the, the ongoing cycle of rabies transmission in those populations um, and then you can prevent the human deaths. How much of a threat is it still, I guess, to Australian biosecurity? Is there potential that it could get here eventually? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first thing um, in terms of talking about the risk to Australia is um, the, the direct risk of import through, through cats and, and dogs that come into Australia. Um, and that's one of the reasons Australia has such stringent um, import measures and post-quarantine entry requirements um, for cats and dogs that are coming to Australia. Um, then there's also the risk that it moves uh, through more uh, natural pathways or that movement of animals um, through the north of Australia. And um, that, that's where we are concerned about this eastward spread um, through the islands of Indonesia. As, as it moves further east, it becomes closer and closer to those northern parts of Australia, which does increase the risk. How does it spread? Is it you need, a, obviously, a, an animal with rabies to get here to Australia? Yeah, that's right. That That's the predominant mechanism that it spreads. Um, and so 
yeah, they're, they're yeah, we're obviously concerned about that illegal potential for illegal movement of animals animals into Australia. Um, Timor Leste is obviously a very close neighbour. Um, Papua New Guinea is also particularly close with the Torres Strait. Um, so, so we're pretty focused on those pathways um, and, and the potential for spread. The only thing, other thing I would mention is that we are also supporting uh, the government of Indonesia in their efforts to control dog-mediated rabies, uh, particularly in Bali and in West Timor. Dr Jenny Jennifer Davis, she's the Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer with the Department of Ag, speaking there to Annie Brown. He's 23 past one here on the Country Hour. Time now for a tune. And then we'll be talking about what exactly a food stylist is and how it relates to mangoes. Sierra Farrell there with In Dreams. Well, there's all sorts of jobs in agriculture, from growing fruit or veggies, raising livestock, working as an agronomist. There's a job for pretty much everyone. But have you heard of this one, a food stylist? Uh, Sarah Coupleditch, she actually works for Mambalu Mangoes. and Her job is all about making food look good. I am working on becoming a food stylist and in the food industry here. So I've studied as a chef and worked as a chef and I'm trying to bridge into food media and publication and at the moment I am currently on a working holiday visa so I'm just finishing my first one and in that I have to do 88 days to apply for a second one and that's why I'm currently here at Mambalu. What does a food stylist do? Um, So a food stylist is a very broad term for a couple of hats that you wear so within that a lot of it is um, the kind of final display of what food looks like, but before that there's a lot of recipe testing, recipe development, recipe writing. There's also a lot of um, art directing and liaising as according to, you know, what the lookers feel is before. There's a lot of, like, pre-production, and then there's the production itself, which is the, um, you know, the actual making of food for camera. And then it's either depending on stills or... Um, whether it's stills or video for video, then you've also got all of that production that goes in place. And then you place it on film or on camera or for the camera um, accordingly on sets to be shot. And what made you want to get into that? Yeah, so um, so I, I studied graphic design and then from that I loved food always and I wanted to do food packaging. I then was like, oh, you know, maybe I should get a little bit more perspective of food. Went and did food studied chefing, did um, three years studying, working, all the rest of it, and then I've decided that I don't want to work in a kitchen. Um, in that, I've also grew up in a very small area, lots of farming, love farms, so agriculture is also another sphere of things that I find interesting. And um, yeah, so I landed up doing, um, moving over to Melbourne to go and work in food styling. Um, and yeah, food has got so many levels to it, from, you know, the agricultural side, starting with the farming to, you know, the end consumer and then also looking at how a consumer gets to the point of wanting to consume and what is the communication in between there. So, yeah, I like lots of different things. I have lots of different interests. Um, but, yeah, it's just the way the world's worked. I've managed to find my opportunities in different spectrums of what a food cycle would look like which is pretty interesting and would the work of a food um, stylist be like cookbooks or like ads for food on tv and things like that is that the kind of work that it 
culminates in? Yes, yeah. So um, anything from cookbooks to um, TV ads to shorts for um, like online media stuff to print ads to, yeah, all sorts of different things. But it's anything that is kind of like consumed food-wise visually. So anything that you visually see um, food-wise without actually eating it has been most likely, you know, done by a food stylist. Sarah Kapoditch, she's trying to do some work as a food stylist. She works for territory company Mambaloo Mangoes, actually based out in their North Queensland properties. There you go. There is a job for everyone. And that's it for the Country Hour for today. We'll be back on your radio at the same time tomorrow. Take it easy.